Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Previously on The Service. The Cold War was about, you know, the confrontation between East and the West. I mean, the Soviet Union was spying on the Labour Party. Spying on the Labour Party? Oh, absolutely. The Russians still very much do know the buttons to push. You were under surveillance while an MP. Yes, that's correct. I think it's outrageous. There was an operation targeting the Czechoslovakian embassy. Do you remember that? I remember it dimly. In a red brick building in London, just a stone's throw from Harrods and Knightsbridge, is the Special Forces Club. It was set up after the Second World War for the men and women of the Special Operations Executive who ran espionage, sabotage and reconnaissance missions behind enemy lines. The staircase is decorated with photographs of extraordinary people, like Wellington-born Nancy Wake, who fought the Germans in occupied France. Those who were killed in the line of duty have a black frame around them. More recently, it's opened up its membership to people in the wider Western intelligence community, as well as military special forces. Ah, oh, so anyone can get in now. Well, Mum was a member. We stayed there a couple of times in the 90s, but like any club, it's who you know. My godfather was the vice president. Mm, of course he was. The family business. Yeah. He was a lieutenant colonel in counter-espionage in India in the war. They made a movie about one of the operations he was on. Gregory Peck, Roger Moore, David Niven. Unfortunately, Bill, there'll be no pay in it. No pensions if anyone's killed or wounded. And no credit. It all sounds unbelievably attractive to me. Love it. Now, those are... Then my godfather worked in oil, supposedly, but I got the impression that might have been a cover... Again, I'm as cagey about details. Uh, first rule of the fight club, right? Same as any good club. Friendly, discreet, loyal. People with a similar outlook and there's a mutual self-interest in joining. This is a place where people swap stories and drink whiskey. And it has its roots in World War Two, like the Five Eyes. And we shouldn't forget the bonds between these people were forged in blood. From the outside, the Five Eyes looks like a hard-nosed international intelligence organisation, tying together the US, the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. But on the inside, it can feel like a club. Any time I went to one of the countries involved, um, there would be always be a one-on-one, almost always be uh, several golf games involved. But these games are strictly invite-only. Yeah, there's one... Very strong club, the Five Eyes, it's jealously guarded. But how should we balance loyalty to the club with loyalty to the nation? 
I think it was perfectly reasonable for a country with New Zealand's diversity and location and history of progressive uh, innovation. Our interests would not always align with the West. In this episode, we're asking, what does it mean to be a member of the club? I'm always concerned for New Zealand to keep its foreign policy independence. And how independent are we really? There is a sort of feeling that we have to earn our stripes, if you know what I mean. And, and so there's a kind of pressure to be super cooperative. And could we get out, even if we wanted to? Trying to get out of the Five Eyes is, uh, how can I put it, it's like trying to get out of the Mafia. From RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions, this is The Service. The Soviet Union was extremely active in New Zealand. A five-part podcast about New Zealand's SIS. All of us lived in the shadows all that time, you know, in the wilderness of mirrors. And its role in the Cold War. I do recall very much the heated times of the nuclear arms race. I'm John Daniel. My mum and my stepdad were SIS officers. I've decided to try and uncover their real story with the help of my friend, journalist Guy Espiner. A big part of that story is a raid on the Czechoslovakian embassy in the mid-1980s to steal secret Warsaw Pact codes. The risks involved in that raid fell mainly on New Zealand, but the benefit would be mostly for our allies. We did it because we're part of the club. Five Eyes began with the UK-USA alliance formed in 1946, which then pulled in Canada, Australia and, in 1956, New Zealand. As the world moved from a hot war into a cold one, there was a strengthening of military and intelligence relationships along the lines of trust, of shared culture and interdependence. Paul Buchanan is a former intelligence analyst for US security agencies who now runs his own consultancy here in New Zealand. One of the things that uh, many people in New Zealand may not realise is that even though we're small and far away, uh, we've always been integral to particularly the Anglophone intelligence networks. And those networks are impervious to political changes, They're impervious to uh, changes in the relationship between the militaries of each of these countries. And so even though we may be far away and small, we uh, are both essential to Western intelligence collection, and that makes us a target for the adversaries of Western intelligence, and the adversaries uh, change over time, but their interest remains constant. Paul Buchanan says these intelligence partners work together regularly. He hadn't heard of the Czech embassy operation, but he says, given the context not just of the Cold War, but the Anzus Stausch, securing Warsaw Pact codes would have been a huge win. I mean, there are multiple layers of good for New Zealand in this. I mean, not only do they find the, you know, the codes, and they can crack Warsaw Pact communications, uh, and that right there, just as an aside, if you think of the tenor of the times in the mid-80s, this is when the, the Soviet bloc, the Warsaw Pact, was starting to disintegrate. 
fairly early in the, in, in, the, in the scheme of things. But you would want to get on to, you know, who's looking to leave, who's going to be staunch and stay in, divisions within, not only within the, between the countries, but within the countries about the transition away from Soviet-style politics. I mean, that, that would be a treasure trove. Now, of course, for the individuals who uh, undertook this caper, There'd be personal accolades, there'd be professional accolades, there'd be institutional accolades. But then, yes, uh, this was a time where the relationship between the U.S. and New Zealand was fraught. The cost is that the United States will say that we are now not as secure as we were, and they will see to it that there is a degree of embarrassment to this government. We deeply regret the decision by the New Zealand government to deny port access to our ships. But it was fraught diplomatically. It uh, was jeopardized militarily. But the intelligence relationship, which runs mostly in parallel and occasionally overlaps with the diplomatic and the military sides, that remained untouched by the non-nuclear row. Uh, let's be very clear, intelligence relationships are too precious. So this just confirmed to not only the other Anglophone partners, but to the United States that we were reliable and we could be trusted to engage in sensitive missions in spite of all the palaver about nukes and, uh, and, and that sort. Isn't that interesting that while the elected governments on that level in the public statements uh, say one thing, uh, beneath that the unelected intelligence officials carry on, that club is so strong. It is, but let's be, let's be very clear in this day and age with all the accusations of the deep state. This is not a deep state, okay? I mean, imagine if the, if the deep state existed, we wouldn't have Donald Trump as president. I mean, they're, you know... Even the most liberal democratic leaders, once they sit down and talk with their intelligence chiefs, they realize the importance of not jeopardizing some of the fundamental relationships. But if you're judged by the company you keep, being close to CIA didn't always reflect well on New Zealand, as US history professor Ken Osgood makes clear in the C-SPAN lecture from 2013. In 1948, the CIA was involved in uh, basically distributing huge tons of cash to favored candidates in the elections in France and Italy. 1951 and 54, organized regime change in Iran and Guatemala uh, and engaged in all sort of electoral bribery in Syria and Indonesia. 1958 to 1963, destabilized the regime in Iraq. 1960 to 1961, there were regime change plots and assassination plots in the Congo and Dominican Republic. The United States tried uh, and failed repeatedly to overthrow the regime of Fidel Castro in Cuba. Money was sent to favored candidates during elections in Brazil. There were regime change plots in British Guiana and Haiti. 1950s into the 1970s, the agency distributed huge subsidies to favored candidates in the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan. The CIA and other parts of the U.S. government helped to install, prop up, and then remove the president of South Vietnam, events that were absolutely essential to laying the groundwork for what would become the Vietnam War. The CIA was in the habit of killing off political leaders back in those days. 
who opposed U.S. policy abroad. And Jimmy Carter, a man of great decency, came in and said, you know, that's not intelligence. That's assassination. You're not gathering intelligence when you're rubbing someone out. That's not part of your charter. That could happen in any one of these democratic countries where people are reined in, operations are curtailed because they're going a little rogue and that sort of thing. And quite frankly, that happens quietly all the time. And it's not just the Americans. British intelligence expert Professor Rory Cormack, author of a book on MI6's covert operations, even managed to surprise himself when he dug into the history of his country's missions across the globe. I surprised myself, I suppose, by um, looking at the, the scope and the scale of, of, of this and just how regularly Britain tried to do this over the years and how they tried to normalise it or turn it into a, a routine part of, of foreign policy. It wasn't about going off and doing big outlandish coups and uh, regime changes, although there are obviously a few examples of that in Britain's um, cupboard. Yeah, because there are fascinating examples, aren't there? Economic warfare against Czechoslovakia almost, or um, you know, bribery and blackmail, or rigging elections if it, if it can. Yeah, we're doing all sorts of, of stuff, um, mostly around influence operations, not just by MI6, but also through something called the Information Research Department, which was run out of the Foreign Office and had very close links with MI6 for much of its existence. And their job was to spread the uh, grey and black propaganda, which included things like forgeries to try and discredit certain communist front organisations, for example. We see a, a broad spectrum of, of operations with influence and propaganda at the, at the backbone, but extending to uh, election uh, meddling, extending to supporting paramilitaries, extending to um, economic um, sabotage or trying to instigate go-slow campaigns in uh, communist factories. Those MI6 operations don't sound a million miles away from the stuff we were discussing last episode with the Russian efforts to subvert democracies. There was a lot going on in Africa, particularly in the era of decolonisation, where Britain was very worried that once they withdrew from Africa, the Soviets would move in. And there was almost this subterranean battle for influence in post-colonial Africa. And we see Britain trying to um, manipulate elections in places like um, Ghana, um, in places like Nigeria, Tanganyika, Zambia, where money was being laundered to the most favourable uh, candidates. And I found a wonderful document recently from uh, the Information Research Department, Britain's propaganda unit, which said in, in, in black and white, talking about the Chilean elections of 1964, said in black and white, because there is a very real danger that the communists might gain control of the country by constitutional means, we are concentrating on covert operations which we think could influence the results of the next election. To 
see those kind of things written down in places as obscure from Britain's strategic interest as, as Latin America brings home the scale of Britain's global thinking about this type of uh, statecraft. We want democracy, but not if we don't like the result. Yeah, although I think in all these cases, it's very important to remember that often the British covert operations were small fry compared to what the Americans are up to, yeah. particularly in places like Latin America. Yeah. We talk about and the, we talk about Britain trying to influence the Chilean election, for example, um, but the Americans are spending uh, millions and millions of dollars uh, doing just that. So Britain kind of com- compared into insignificance to an extent. These operations took place decades ago, more than half a century in the case of the Chilean election. We only know about them now because those documents have become accessible so long after the events they describe. In the 21st century, it's hard to know what New Zealand's Five Eyes partners are getting up to. But after 9-11, some of it hasn't been pretty. It was not torture. I don't believe it was torture. So a black site is a secret prison set up by the CIA overseas for interrogating terrorism suspects. The inquiry into alleged British complicity in the rendition and torture of terror suspects is to investigate how far the security services went. Helen Clark argues Five Eyes is a net positive for New Zealand, but that doesn't mean following it blindly. For example, what turned out to be the sexed-up dossiers about WMDs that led to the invasion in Iraq. Remember, Clark chose to keep New Zealand out of all that. The former Prime Minister now warns New Zealand is drifting too close to its Five Eyes partners. I think you're as independent as you want to be. Uh, I consider we, we were independent in, in my time. Uh, I sense there's been a bit of slippage since then, frankly, uh, but uh, I never felt under any uh, particular constraint or duty to do anything. Slippage? Why? Oh, just drawn in a, a lot closer, I think. That's my impression. Mm. Do you have examples, or what has led you to think that? A, a number of sources in officialdom uh, who one talks to informally have given me the impression that New Zealand has got a lot closer back in, whereas I was of the view that it was useful, but that also that the New Zealand independent foreign policy, which had been so firmly staked on the ground going back to the uh, nuclear-free issue, uh, had to be safeguarded. Uh, My impression is that there's a lot more active liaison even to uh, the level of more junior staff in New Zealand embassies abroad with Five Eyes partners than there ever uh, used to be. Uh, And I think that goes right up up the chain. Uh, But, look, so be it. Are you worried about that? Well, uh, I'm always concerned for New Zealand to keep its foreign policy independence because I think our international standing is based on a perception that New Zealand will speak its own mind and make its own judgments. And that's what you get respect for. If when you make a representation or a case or advocate for something in the international system and you are seen as a mouthpiece, well, it will be treated accordingly. So New Zealand being seen to have integrity for positions that it's thought out itself and nobody has leaned on it to say certain things is extremely important to me. But just how independent have we ever been in terms of the five eyes? Our anti-nuclear stance has become a badge of pride for many New Zealanders. In 1985, David Longey travelled to Britain for a debate at the Oxford Union. 
He proposed the motion that nuclear weapons are morally indefensible. Mr Lange comes to the dispatch box and the House on both sides is rising to him. That is a very, very rare event in the Oxford Union. I'm not sure in the 25 years since I was president I've ever seen that happen here in this historic hall before. But he is having a most enthusiastic reception. Not quite everybody is on their feet, but a very large numbers. And it's on both sides of the House. It's a mark of courtesy and uh, respect, as well as, in some cases, support for his views. Here is the Prime Minister. Honourable members of the Union, ladies and gentlemen, in fact, if I could greet straight away, because I understand there is a direct fee to the White House tonight, if I could greet the President of the United States, who is, of course, at the very genesis of the proposition we're debating tonight. His opponent was US televangelist Jerry Falwell, but Longy's most memorable line came in response to a question from a young American. What I should like to know, sir, is why you don't do the honorable and the consistent thing and pull out of the ANZUS alliance for whether you are snuggling up to the bomb or living in the peaceful shadow of the bomb, New Zealand benefits, sir, and that's the question with which we charge you and that's the question with which we would like an answer, sir. And I'm going to give it to you if you hold your breath, just for a moment. <laughs> I could smell the uranium on it as you lean towards it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a kind of one-line embodiment of our independent foreign policy, isn't it? But it doesn't answer the question, why didn't we have the courage of our convictions and pull out of ANZUS? Yeah, we remember the zinger, but not the answer that came after. Longy wanted a defence relationship based on conventional weapons, I guess, rather than nuclear ones. New Zealand was declared by the former government to be no part of a nuclear alliance, and we will pick up the tab by conventional defence... Yeah, Longy doesn't mention intelligence, but that's part of the whole package too. So the idea that New Zealand was going it alone is kind of a fantasy, isn't it? It's just what we wanted to believe. Well, the Americans played into that the following year, in 1986, by formally stepping away from the ANZUS Treaty. It was George Schultz, who was the Secretary of State at the time. He said, famously, we part company as friends, but we part company as far as the alliance is concerned. No more nuclear ship visits, no more joint military exercises between the countries. But the Five Eyes, the intelligence partnership remains. We're still part of the club. So Bruce Ferguson, who headed both the military and the GCSB, puts it this way. In my whole time as Chief of Defence Force, I can't put hand on heart and say that we were... um, left out of intelligence which otherwise would have been useful for us. I I got everything I wanted, right from when I became CDF. If I asked the questions, particularly with reference to Afghanistan, we got the answers, we got the intelligence. See, that's really interesting to me because at the political level, the (coughs) message was New Zealand has been naughty with ANZUS and the nuclear ships, and we aren't going to share intelligence with you. But it appears that you're saying that really, at the operational level, yeah. within the club, you got what you yeah. wanted. There were two levels operating, Guy, and really there was the, the political level and the political expectations and understanding of what's going on, and the, the, the worker bee level. That was us, uh, the intelligence side. Um, I, I guess yeah, if you look back on that time, when I said uh, the military, we had to withdraw all of our people from America, uh, were you to ask me, did that happen in intelligence also, I might give you a different answer. 
Um, did we withdraw our people? No. No. Really? No, they stayed on. Well, I'm talking they, I'm talking very small numbers. But we... So, so where did they stay? At the NSA? Uh, yeah, basically. We never lost that position. But Gerald Hensley, who was head of the Prime Minister's Department at the time, says going nuclear-free wasn't totally free of consequences. Everybody said at the time, the Americans and the Australians and the Brits, that um, it would not uh, affect exchange of intelligence. But in fact it did. There was no way it could have avoided. The... So there was a, uh, a price. The Americans said from the outset that any uh, information involving our direct security or terrorist operations uh, would, of course, be passed on, and they honoured that completely. But, uh, for example, we used to sit on the Joint Intelligence Committee in London, but the Americans would not attend if we were there, so we tactfully withdrew. So we lost some contact with the Brits, uh, the Australians really did the best they could, but it meant that they had to run two uh, briefing operations, uh, their normal one, and then they had to censor that uh, for intelligence derived from American sources before they handed it on to New Zealand. So we did suffer uh, a loss, but our main aim at that point was to protect the relationship. Uh, indeed, uh, I went off um, before David Longy uh, went to the, um, you know, at, uh, on his um, direction, before he went to the Oxford Union uh, debate to travel around our intelligence allies and, um, you know, do the best I could to, to, uh, to keep it going. And on the whole, it did. So there's a gap here between perception and reality. The popular history of the breakdown in our relationship with the US doesn't really line up with the facts. Yeah, neither does the idea of New Zealand always maintaining its independence within the Five Eyes. Listen here to the former Prime Minister, Sir Geoffrey Palmer. One of the problems with these agencies is that they, they have to have very close cooperation with all our other Five Eyes partners. And being the smallest one of them, who probably contributes the least... Uh, to it, um, there is a sort of feeling that we have to earn our stripes, if you know what I mean. Uh, and, and so there's a kind of pressure to be super cooperative. Were you? Well, I, I remember doing things that the Americans wanted done uh, on one occasion. Uh, I don't think I can give the details of it, but it was quite important to them and uh, we facilitated it and uh, it was done. Palmer gives one example of where Five Eyes partners knew more than New Zealand cabinet ministers about our intelligence gathering. Kim Beasley came over here from Australia. Beasley was Australian Defence Minister from 1984 to 1990. And we took him to a cabinet meeting. He said, I'm going to thank them for the way uh, station, which he was an important investment from, from the point of view of our partners, that we were increasing our capacity here. Uh, and I said, Kim, you can't do that. They don't know anything about it. Only three ministers knew about that. <laughs> the Minister of Defence, the Prime Minister and me. 
but that didn't last long. Waihopai Station, the GCSB's satellite interception base near Blenheim, started operating in 1989 and soon became a magnet for opposition to New Zealand's role in Five Eyes. Protests against a military listening post being built at Waihopai near Blenheim gathered momentum today as about 120 people took part in a peaceful rally. Singing, speeches and balloons... Yeah, it's also been the target of regular protests about government oversight of the intelligence agencies. That's right. In the forward to the book Secret Power, this is Nicky Hager's book about New Zealand's role in the Five Eyes, David Longy writes that... It was not until I read this book that I had any idea that we had been committed to an international integrated electronic network. Which is a pretty serious accusation to be making that the head of the government that signed off on the base didn't even know what it was doing. He goes on to say that... It is an outrage that I and other ministers were told so little. And this raises the question of to whom those concerned saw themselves ultimately answerable. It's worth mentioning Gerald Hensley disputes this. He says he regularly briefed Longy about what was involved at Waihopai. If Five Eyes was set up as a Cold War institution, what's the upside to remaining part of it now? Well, in 2018, the GCSB said Russia had tried cyber attacks here. Here's security analyst Paul Buchanan. But we have to understand the Russian conundrum in, uh, in its proper context. Uh, Russia is a relatively weak state. It has come out of the ashes of the Soviet Union, where it was fundamentally broken. And it has re-emerged as a, I, I could call it a great state. But it's economically fragile. It's demographically wrought uh, by a number of social ills. It's not as politically unified as many people may think because of the presence of Vladimir Putin in office. And so it has to project its power in very specific ways in order to overcome those deficiencies. And the best way is to engage in influence campaigns, uh, the so-called fake news mongering, So you soften other countries that otherwise would be hostile to your interests. And you can do so without firing a shot. I mean, the Achilles heel of liberal democracies is freedom of expression. Because it's a two-way street. And the Russians are geniuses at this. I mean, you have to give them total respect. They uh, are masters at disinformation at psychological operations, the manipulation of social media, they've taken it to an art form. And so that's what they're doing. They're going to places in the third world. They're going to Latin America. They're now coming down into the Antipodes and they're, they're sowing, if you will, the fields. Are we at risk from that? I mean, we've seen it obviously in the US. The indictment charges 13 Russian nationals and three Russian companies for committing federal crimes while seeking to interfere in the United States political system. We've seen it with the, the hack on the DNC. CNBC has confirmed an earlier story by the Washington Post that the Russian government and hackers penetrated the computer network of the Democratic National Committee and gained access to the entire database of opposition research on GOP presidential candidate Donald Trump. 
We saw it with the trolls and the bots in, in the presidential election. The bots targeted millions of Twitter and Facebook posts carrying links to stories on conservative internet sites such as Breitbart and InfoWars. Purchasing ads that reached millions of Americans designed to create divisions on a whole range of topics including are we in New Zealand at risk of that, do you think? I think we are. I don't think that we're, you know, we're as, as, as a source of fascination the way the United States is. But again, uh, we're part of Five Eyes. We're a, a liberal democracy that oftentimes in, in international fora uh, votes against the interests of not only the Russians, but remember the Russians aren't the only ones who are playing this game. Other, other authoritarian powers have been quick to realize this is, again, this is a type of warfare in which shots are not fired. But think of it this way. If you can weaken your enemy from within before you have to confront him from without, that's genius. I mean, that's, that's the way to go. If we look at the discourse of politics in New Zealand over the last few years, and we notice certain contentious subjects, uh, I think we can see the influence of foreign powers in the narratives or the counter-narratives, the discourses. Uh, obviously, China. I mean, the whole, the way we tiptoe around Chinese issues is disproportionate to our relationship with China, important as it is. On a pure numbers basis, New Zealand is a clear winner from Five Eyes in the sense that we get a lot more than we give. A report on the intelligence services by Patsy Reddy, now the Governor-General, and Michael Cullen, the former Deputy Prime Minister, lays it out. They say that of all the security leads the NZSIS investigates, around half are received from foreign partners. It goes on to say that for every intelligence report the SIS provides to a foreign partner, it gets 170 international reports. For every report the GCSB makes available to its partners, it gets access to 99 in return. Here's Geoffrey Palmer. I, I don't think you're ever going to be able to get rid of these agencies, and I, I think that, you know, when it, we, you get... 99 pieces of intelligence for every one you contribute, you've got to be getting, that's really helpful. Now, um, there's a lot of activity about terrorism in the world now. You want to know who's coming here, you want to have them checked out, you want to know who the risks are. I mean, that's the sort of thing that you cannot do without. And we, in many ways, we're lucky to have this. Paul Buchanan says that given their limited resources, the SIS would face an impossible task without their partners. The SIS, as a human intelligence agency, does three things. It does domestic espionage. It does foreign espionage. We put people on the ground, particularly in the English-speaking South Pacific. That's our, that's our, our corner of the world, our, our area of responsibility. And then we do counterintelligence, human counterintelligence. So, for example, let's say there is a Chinese businessman who actually is a spy, uh, and he's worming his way into one of our strategic industries, and the motive 
is to steal intellectual property secrets and that sort of thing, it is the SIS that is supposed to counter that. Now, let's be clear. The SIS has around 300 people in its employ. Of those, not all are secret agents. At least a third of them are just administrative personnel. So let's say for the sake of argument, you have 200 covert operatives to do domestic intelligence, foreign intelligence, and counterintelligence. Now, you can do one of those things very well with 200 people. You can do two of those things reasonably well with 200 people. You cannot do three of those things adequately with 200 people. Something's got to give. And so that's where I think the, the influence of our foreign partners comes in. Five Eyes isn't some catch-all insurance. It didn't stop the Christchurch mosque attacks. But maybe they have stopped, or will stop, similar tragedies or more complex, slow-rolling attacks on our country. In an increasingly uncertain world, there's a survivor's logic in a small country sticking close to its bigger allies. And those ties are cultivated at a personal level, making sure the right people are in the right place. In 1986, a New Zealand Air Force officer in his mid-30s got a surprise offer to attend a prestigious American War College. Uh, and I was the first New Zealander to be selected to go there, which was one hell of a surprise to us and to me particularly, because that was pretty much uh, at the height of the, the ANZUS rift. And suddenly up came this invitation to send a senior New Zealand officer to a United States War College, and we'd never been there before, ever. Uh, I know my boss came and said, what the hell do you make of this, Bruce? We've already heard from Bruce, who became Sir Bruce, military and intelligence chief Sir Bruce Ferguson, and I said, no idea, I just, it's out of the blue. And he said, what are they trying to do? What, what, what's the motive behind this? Again, no idea. Uh, and I think the motive was actually quite innocent and simplistic. They were expanding their, their reach, so to speak, on international uh, nations, trying to broaden their whole concept, and New Zealand popped up. Just how innocent and simplistic that invitation was might be worth thinking about. It's common practice among the club to keep the bonds tight with individuals as well as governments. There isn't necessarily anything sinister to it. In any case, he does a two-year stint at the US Air Force College. There's 246 students, all sort of colonels and above, so the top 10% of the top 10% of our officer corps are here basically top gun for the officer class, despite the fact that the US had pulled its military cooperation with New Zealand by that point. I think it had a, a, a significant effect on, on all of us, the, the loss of that contact with America. And that's why me going on to War College was so surprising. Because at the academic level, and this is a, a master's level course, um, there was nothing uh, withheld from me. 
there was a bit of a, um, a contradiction going on. On the operational side, we couldn't do anything. On the academic side, we were totally involved. In the mid-1990s, he studies at the British equivalent, the Royal College of Defence Studies, working and mixing with the elite of the British military. Then, in 2001, Bruce Ferguson becomes Chief of the Defence Force. Five years later, he gets to head up the GCSB. That's the Government Communications Security Bureau. Working alongside the SIS, it's one of Five Eyes' listening ears. Where the SIS does human intelligence... The GCSB does signals intelligence, intercepting swathes of electronic communications and doing the cyber security that, it says, keeps New Zealand's digital secrets safe. And the US had been keeping track of Bruce Ferguson's career as he rose. A US State Department cable published by WikiLeaks in 2010 shows the American embassy in Wellington writing home to say that Ferguson like SIS Chief Warren Tucker and others, was, quote, well disposed to America. These officials have improved their agency's coordination on U.S. policy and instructed staff to be helpful to us wherever possible. When he returned to the U.S. as head of the GCSB, Bruce Ferguson was on intimate terms with the heads of the world's most powerful intelligence-gathering agencies. We had our our annual conferences, and in in between we had other meetings. Uh, But any time I went to one of the countries involved, um, there would always be a one-on-one, almost always be uh, several golf games involved. Um, You You play golf with the head of the ESA? Absolutely, many times. Uh, And with the head of CIA and FBI um, and uh, the... uh, and the Brits, in fact, it used to annoy me in the fact that uh, on a golf course, the head of NSA, head of CIA, FBI, all had their uh, Secret Service protectors, normally about six each, and we'd play as a foursome, and I had none, which meant when I hit into the rough, I had to find my own ball. Uh, when they hit into the rough, uh, their Secret Service was always in the rough waiting, and inexplicably, they always found their balls, and they always looked brand new. Um, but for mine, I often lost mine. But no, we had a very good, uh, very strong relationship with all of the uh, personnel at the top. Uh, it was a very personal relationship, actually. We'd have dinner at uh, private houses. I'd always be invited to their private houses for dinner with their family. Did we have NSA people at the GCSB? <laughs> I'll answer that in a roundabout way. We had people at NSA, person, so... Uh, you can take your own conclusions from that. So I will take it that it's an exchange. That's a pretty good description, yes. So Bruce Ferguson says New Zealand guards its independence in five eyes and that not all secrets are shared between the partners. You know, a secret shared is a secret lost, really. Uh, and if it doesn't pertain or relate or has any sort of impact on another partner, then there's no real point in sharing it. It's, it's just expanding the ability to lose that secret. So where it is not relevant to other partners, it generally would not be shared. But where it is relevant or could become relevant, then it would be shared. Sir Bruce does not agree with Sir Geoffrey Palmer that New Zealand 
as the smallest member of the club, was always eager to please. Certainly in my experience with the Five Eyes, we were never falling over ourselves to, to go and lick backside, so to speak. It just it was not us. It's not New Zealand, never has been. So, and Geoffrey Palmer was not involved, although he was Prime Minister and he had been briefed on it. Uh, it's a fairly intimate relationship when you're in there, and it certainly wasn't uh, you know, falling over ourselves to, to please. We certainly didn't do that. The club is, is very tight, isn't it? Pretty much anyone who's not in the Five Eyes Club is fair game to be spied on. Um, generically, yes, that's been public for a while. I mean, the, the French have complained, the Germans have complained. Among the revelations from Edward Snowden in 2013 was that the Five Eyes had intercepted communications from German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Today at a European Union summit in Brussels, Merkel said her trust in the U.S. had been damaged by reports that her calls were monitored. I have made it clear to the President of the United States that spying on friends is not acceptable at all. I said that when he was in Berlin in July. There have also been complaints about Five Eyes operations against other Western allies. And that's the way of the world, yes. Uh, anyone's fair game if it's in your own national interests to look at them. And that could be for economic uh, reasons or whatever. This is actually an important point. One of the major Snowden revelations was that the Five Eyes weren't just going after terrorists and hostile states. They were also using their powers to give members a leg up in trade negotiations. But yeah, there's one very strong club, the Five Eyes. It's jealously guarded. It's, uh, it's looked on very enviously by probably every other Western nation. Uh, it's about you know, how dear these five... English-speaking, you know, they're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant-type group. Uh, why are they uh, so unique? Well, they are unique in the story, and we should safeguard that. That cooperation, the club atmosphere, making sure the right people get in, there are echoes of that in my mother's recruitment to the service. It was the latter part of the 60s and um, I had no idea what I was going into at all. I had no idea. Every now and again I'd see Brigadier Gilbert somewhere. Brigadier Gilbert had set up the SIS in 1956 and served as its head until 1976. And he'd say, when are you coming to work for me? And I'd say, oh, <laughs> whatever I was doing, didn't know what he was on to. Anyway, the time came when I sort of was quite interested and then I went for an interview with three... No, I was first interviewed in a coffee shop by one guy on the staff and then I had a panel of three firing questions at me. Still didn't know what it was all about at all. What did they ask you? <laughs> well, I, to tell you the truth, the only question I can remember was what party my parents would vote for. And I thought that was very rude. And when you say um, Brigadier Gilbert, who was the head of the SIS at the time, right, most people aren't sort of kicking around with Brigadier Gilbert. Um, so how did that happen? I mean, how did you come oh, to be in Oh, well, because he was the same age as my parents. They knew each other. Just General Wellington, you know, 
So it was the same social circles in some ways, was it? I suppose, yeah. Hmm. But drawing from those same social circles wasn't always foolproof, as Britain's MI6 famously found out. It had a Soviet mole named Kim Philby, one of the so-called Cambridge Five, all Soviet spies, all drawn from the upper middle classes, and all able to escape detection for a time precisely because of that. Here's a recording of Philby unearthed by the BBC. He's talking to East German secret police officers in 1981, after he had defected to Russia. Because I'd been born into the British governing class, because I knew a lot of people of an influential standing, I knew that they would never get too tough with me. They'd never try to beat me up or knock me around. Because um, if they had been proved wrong afterwards, I could have made a tremendous scandal. Who do you trust? It's a question that comes up time and again in the wilderness of mirrors. Kit Bennett, who we met in previous episodes, left the service in the 1980s, but that wasn't the end of his career in espionage. You say in, in your book that you have worked for two intelligence agencies. What can you tell us, if anything, about your work for the other intelligence agency? Well, well not, not a lot. I really can't say anything much about it, other than that certainly um, one programme that I was on was, was, was really very rewarding and, and I kind of like to think that I, that I achieved one or two little things. Um, although my efforts, sadly, were largely blown by... A man named Nicholson, who was a uh, the most senior officer of CIA ever to have um, ever to have been turned by the Soviets, um, he's currently languishing in Florence Supermax, where where I don't know when he's whether he'll ever come out of there. And another man named um, Aldrich Ames, who also um, blew one of my operations as well. And uh, he's I'm not sure where where he is, but he ain't ever coming out either. But even if sometimes you can't trust an individual, you still have to trust the organisation. You still trust the club. Trust. Loyalty. Shared values. They've been the basis of an alliance that's held for 75 years. And they explain why New Zealand took part in a raid on the Czechoslovakian embassy for Warsaw Pact codes in 1986. The justification was that we were all in it together. But if the membership of that club hasn't changed over the decades, it doesn't feel quite like the club we signed up to. Donald Trump is gushing again over Vladimir Putin. If he says great things about me, I'm going to say great things about him. Now he's tweeted in his own name uh, that uh, this is uh, something that was very smart by Vladimir Putin and praising him. And while the impeachment inquiry heats up in Washington, the president is clashing with other Western leaders at that NATO summit in London. Oh, he's too fast. 
That's how Donald Trump described Justin Trudeau Wednesday. In one of the tweets, the president says that NATO has been delinquent. NATO is, is obsolete, it's old, it's fat, it's sloppy. There are also questions about the strength of the alliance itself, with the recent lack of coordination between the U.S. and Europe. Kim Jong-un, was uh, he really has been uh, very open and I think very honorable from everything we're seeing. How politically aligned we are now to our security partners isn't the only question mark hanging over the relationship. In security terms, we are Western-centric. There can be no doubt about that. Everything is on the West side of things, notwithstanding our relationship with the Chinese and trade and what have you, and that, of course, puts us on the horns of a dilemma because we're trading preferentially as a trade-dependent country with... Um, states that are, if not hostile, averse to many of the Western countries that are our biggest security partners, and in many cases our trading partners are authoritarian, so they don't espouse the values that unite the Western Security Alliance. Paul Buchanan says that we've been viewed for years as the Achilles heel of the Five Eyes, and that's being exacerbated by our increasingly close economic ties to China. The US is worried about that in the context of trying to limit China's influence in the wider Pacific. In January of this year, the Financial Times reported an unnamed senior intelligence official from a Five Eyes country saying that New Zealand was on the edge of viability as a member because of its supine attitude to China and its compromised political system. That's a veiled threat, isn't it? Is that a serious possibility, getting kicked out of the Five Eyes? Well, it could just be the Americans trying to heavy New Zealand to distance itself from China by getting some scary stories published in the media. Hmm. But even if they are serious, Paul Buchanan points out that getting out of Five Eyes isn't as simple as just flicking a switch. Trying to get out of the Five Eyes is, uh, how could I put it, it's like trying to get out of the mafia. All right? Once you're in, you're made. And let's just think of the practicalities. If we were to quit Five Eyes, uh, those listening stations, you know, on New Zealand soil, they're going to have to be dismantled. The equipment inside of them, the equipment inside GCSB headquarters, okay, this is the most sensitive eavesdropping equipment in the world. We're going to have to negotiate how to get that stuff out of here. But what about the people? What's in their heads? You have officers who know the secrets. They know everything. What do you do with these people? Do they sell their services to someone else? In all likelihood, leaving Five Eyes would mean enlarging the intelligence agencies to pick up the heavy lifting currently done by allies, or simply making the call to go without. But Paul Buchanan says there's still room for improvement. One area in which we don't match up to our Five Eyes partners is in the area of transparency. The British and Australian intelligence services have written official histories. The CIA allows access to its files under their freedom of information laws. But here in New Zealand, trying to extract information from the SIS feels like taking part in an elaborate practical joke. And the joke's on us. My impression from talking to, to retired intelligence people here in New Zealand is that they have this utter contempt and disdain for the public. Uh, they believe 
that the public, the public, New Zealand public, believes that they have their best, our best interests in mind. That no intelligence person would do something untoward. You know that these are, you know, the cleanest of the clean and that sort of thing. And in turn, the intel people use that to abuse their powers. In, in other words, they're contemptuous of the knowledge of the public, and to some extent, they might be correct. The public really doesn't know a lot about the intelligence business, doesn't know about you know, the broad landscape of threats that New Zealand is located in, again, in spite of its position, geographic position in the world. Do you think that they are still contemptuous of the public? I think some of them are. I think there's been some change. My faith is on the younger generation of officers coming through. My understanding is that the GCSB has cleaned up its act quite a bit. Uh, I also understand, however, that the old boys network and the SIS has been very resistant uh, to institutional change, that Director Kitteridge has had a very difficult time bringing these guys on board. Uh, we know, for example, that they've been very uh, reluctant to cooperate with some of the requests of the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. And so that tells me that uh, there still are pockets of, uh, believe it or not, Cold War resistance within the senior management of the SIS in particular, and that's, that's a shame. That reluctance to cooperate is what we've been dealing with for the last year, trying to put this story together. We applied for six boxes of material held in Archives New Zealand and got just a handful of old letters of little consequence. To give you a flavour of the secrecy, a box of documents on proposed amendments to the SIS Act 1969, so these are ideas about tweaks to a 50-year-old law, they are restricted access until 2069. And in response to our Official Information Act requests for documents on that Czech embassy raid, the SIS said they could neither confirm nor deny the existence or the non-existence of any information at all. They did give us the old files on Bill Such, well, some of them, and they let us photograph a few old Soviet artefacts from the museum. But it's what's known in the intelligence world as chicken feed. So the documents are a dead end. We're left with what they call human, human intelligence. And only a handful of people even knew there was a raid on the Czech embassy. But three of them have talked to us. Including former intelligence chief, Gerald Hensley. In the practical sense, if it went wrong, the political storm might, uh, you know, be very large. Someone who worked on the early stages of the raid... Was there engagement with uh, Czech embassy people? Yes. Yes. As part of that operation? Yes. So in the early days of that? Yes. And an SIS officer who was actually there. I'm just going to read out a list of statements, a list of things um, that we know already from different people. And you hang up if we get something wrong. It's been kept secret for 35 years until now. 
the Czech Embassy raid in the final episode of The Service. The Service is made by RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions with support from New Zealand On Air. It's hosted and produced by Guy and Espiner and me, John Daniel, with additional reporting by Robert Breston. Our sound engineers are Adrian Holai and Rangi Powak. Our producer is William Ray. Thanks to Nga Taonga for the archival audio and to Anthony Tonin for the original music throughout the series. The executive producers for RNZ are Tim Watkin and Veronica Schmidt. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favourite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is... Another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.